Good morning, everyone. My name is Vijay Reddy, and I am a researcher at the Human Sciences Research Council. And together with my co-chair, Nick Spall, we'll steer the next two hours. As you imagine, this is a massive and complex exercise to run this uh, seminar or webinar um, on a digital platform. We have five uh, speakers in total, and uh, the RSVPs were about 500, and so we're still expecting more people to connect on. So we'll uh, trust in technology and for the next two hours. <clears throat> I would like to recognize and, uh, and welcome all of you that are attending this webinar, Getting Children Back to School Safely. As a definition for this seminar, children will refer to anybody under the age of 19 years uh, old. And that means this is one third of the South African population. The focus uh, of this presentation is on children, but that does not mean to say we don't recognize teachers and other adults which forms part of the uh, schooling community. But the, the science that is presented in the seminar uh, is, re relates to, uh, to, to children. Looking, so I, uh, this is a weird kind of thing. You never know if anybody's there. Tabok, can you hear me? Is, can everybody hear me? Is it all right? Yes, you're doing well, Vijay. We can all hear you and see you. Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Thank you. So it is weird not to see people and uh, to, to acknowledge body language. Um, looking at the list of people that responded to the uh, seminar, I recognize some broad categories of people and I just want to uh, acknowledge them. Firstly, there's parents and children. And the, the majority of us attending, while we might have given our institutional affiliation, are also children, uh, parents or childminders or live in a household where someone attends school. So, of course, we have multiple identities. And so this identity does become one of those that will inform how you view the presentation. The second category were teachers and officials from national and provincial departments of education, as well as uh, senior officials from the teacher unions, all interested in this topic. Then there are those from research institutions, universities, and NGOs, and a big number from the medical and health professions. Um, I especially uh, would like to acknowledge the number of pediatricians that responded and I'm sure you will also be receiving a number of questions from parents and children for their safe return. I want to recognize and appreciate our three main speakers, Professor Rafilwe Masakela, Professor Sitimbeso Velapi, and Dr. Mo Archery. And all are frontline workers and have given precious time to be here today, but I'll come back to them in a minute. So why did we arrange this webinar? With the insertion of the coronavirus into the South African population and the response of a nationwide lockdown to slow down, not eliminate the rate of new infections and prepare society and the healthcare system for this ep epidemic, schools had to be closed. As we await the discovery of a safe vaccine or some treatment for COVID-19, the projections are that this epidemic will, be, will continue for one or two years. 
We have to find safe ways to coexist with the virus and resume some sort of normalcy. As our life and economy and institutions restart, in an environment which requires social distancing, there are many anxieties and challenges, none more so than the reopening of schools. Recently, the <clears throat> Ministerial Advisory Committee convened a subcommittee uh, to prepare an advisory to the Minister of Health on how children get back to school safely. Prof. Velapi and Dr. Archery are two members of the Ministerial Advisory Committee and were part of that subcommittee. Nick and I, as education researchers, were invited to participate in that committee. A key discussion point was the feelings and perceptions of parents and children about returning to school. For months, we've seen the media images from around the world of people being very sick, of people being on ventilators and people dying. These images shape the, our perception about safety in spaces outside the home. There are 12 million children in our schooling system and ensuring their safety is of paramount importance. Equally important is the pub, that the public must believe that it is safe to send their children back to school. And hence this decision that we took to hold this webinar. And there's two main things that I wanna tell you about that. Firstly, the Human Sciences Research Institution is a public institution with a statutory obligation to communicate research and evidence to multiple stakeholders. This seminar, which is of national interest, would fall under the ambit of its public uh, responsibilities, uh, responsibilities to the public. Secondly, in this, in this seminar, we want to focus on the evidence from medical science for the decision to get back to school safety. You would have seen many seminars being held about getting back to school safely, about learning, governance, etc. And this, this, this focus is the medical science. And it would become one form of one information source for parents or teachers or schools or departments of education to make decisions about getting their children back to school. The science is one aspect, decision-making is, is something else. This seminar, <clears throat> Getting Children Back to School Safely, is what the medical experts says, say, will be presented through answering three questions. The first question on the seminar is, do children get COVID-19, led by Professor Rafil Wermasakela, a short introduction, uh, Prof, Prof Masakela is the head of Department of Pediatrics and Child Health at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. She is a pediatric pulmonologist and all our communication about this uh, virus is that it attacks lungs um, and hence uh, Prof Masakela, I'm sure that there'd be lots of questions for, or, uh, for you. The second question, uh, question relates to, are children COVID-19 super spreaders? And this would be led by Professor Sitimbeso Velapi. Prof Velapi is the head of pediatrics at the Chris Baragwanath, Chris Hani Academic Hospital 
and associate professor at the University of Witwatersrand. He specializes in pediatric neonatology. The third question that we will uh, provide science around is, how can we make schools relatively safe? Dr. Mo Archery. Dr. Archery is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at King Edward VIII Hospital and is affiliated to the University of KwaZulu-Natal. In advance of the concluding comments, on behalf of all the, those that attend, I would like to thank the three of you for making your time available. In terms of the um, presentation, the program uh, would, the, the structure of the program is that each of the uh, presenters will make a 15 minute presentation. I must warn in advance that you should pay careful attention because there is a fair amount of science, there's a fair amount of evidence, and that's the best way for you to also uh, pick up on, on, on the debates. There might be delays in the pictures on the slides coming onto your screen, so just wait for a minute. Uh, and uh, with this large audience, as I said, our RSVPs, I, I can't see the number on my screen of how many have already come on, but we're expecting 500. It may not be possible to take individual questions, and so we will, uh, you, if you could place your questions onto the uh, screen, onto the chat, please, and between Nick and I, we will collate the questions and try to, to aggregate it in some form to present it to the panelists. We, uh, in this, pre after each presentation, um, there will be a short, as we uh, switch over, there'll be one or two questions that Nick will present uh, to ask the, the panelists. To the question of whether there's recordings, uh, if this, uh, if this would be, re if the program would be recorded, the answer is yes, there's a recording going on. And at the end of this uh, presentation, we are trying to splice it into three, um, three uh, presentations, one from, for each of the presenters and will be uh, the link to those pre presentations will be sent to all of those who RSVP'd. In addition uh, to, to that, we will try to ask as many questions, uh, to answer as many questions as possible. But uh, the panelists have indicated that for those questions that we could not answer during this time, we try to uh, collate the questions and get answers and again, Arlene Grossberg, who has sent you the, the communication from the HSRC, will send the links to the recordings and to the questions that we have. With that, uh, I would like to, again, uh, thank you very much for attending and invite our first speaker, Professor Masakela, to uh, start her presentation. Okay, firstly, I would like to say thank you very much to uh, Vijay for arranging what I think is an extremely important meeting. And I think uh, at this stage, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of concern. And I hope that at the end of this uh, 15 minute talk, uh, people will have a few answers uh, with regards to, uh, is it safe for children to go back to school? 
So I'm going to just address, to touch very briefly, I think uh, all of us know that uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 is a critical problem worldwide at the moment. I will speak a little bit about the numbers in South Africa and then I'll put children in perspective of those numbers. We will uh, go a little bit into the data about is there a risk of spread of disease from children and how this can be reduced or mitigated. Uh, we'll talk very briefly about the symptoms, typical symptoms in children and the differences between that and adults. And then I will also briefly touch on those children that are at high risk for COVID-19 that should be con uh, have the special consideration. So I think I'd like to start by saying, uh, as you probably all well know, COVID-19 has only really been with us as a world for the last five months or so, only identified on the 31st of December in 2019. So uh, a lot of the information that we'll be sharing today is really based on data from China, uh, from the Europe and the US, uh, where this, the, 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 the pandemic, pandemic has actually ahead of South Africa. So that has also assisted us a little bit in, in how we can look at the data and what the data is telling us about children. But again, I'd like to stress that although in many countries the pandemic has reached its peak and other countries is also uh, coming down, a lot of countries have instituted a policy of closing down schools. So we don't have much data in terms of the impact of COVID-19 in, in school children, but we also, uh, uh, while that is not the case and very few countries have kept their schools open, we have a lot of data already. If you look on, uh, do a literature search on COVID, you'll see there's a lot of data that has been generated over the last five months. So that we do have some data and we can make some inferences uh, to guide us as to whether it's safe to, uh, for our children to go back to school. So what are the numbers? I think uh, looking at the data this morning of COVID infections worldwide, we know that uh, at the moment there's over 4.9 million people affected worldwide and uh, the statistics from for the, for the South Africa yesterday was over 27,000 people uh, affected with COVID-19. Now, what I wanted to put into perspective in terms of the overall burden of COVID-19 is to look at the disease itself in the South African context and what impact has this disease had on children. Now, if you look at the number of infections, the 27,000 infections in South Africa, this is data from our NICD. If we look at the number of people per 100,000 population, uh, we know that a third of the population in South Africa is made out of children under the age of 19. And we know the various hotspots in the country. You can see that uh, per 100,000 population, the Western Cape has the highest burden with almost 100, just over 130 people, followed by the Eastern Cape, uh, Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. But putting into context children, if we look at the uh, what I've highlighted in red, these are uh, uh, children under the age of 19, starting from age 0 to 19. Uh, if you focus on the final column, you can see that children uh, per 100,000 incidence risk would be somewhere between three and a half to about 8.5. Um, but if we look at the adult population, it goes up to 48. So 
I think what this shows us is if we look at the data worldwide, we know from different various parts of the world, uh, the first uh, part of our data we received was from China, the range of children infected with COVID-19 is anywhere between 1% uh, up to about 5 to 6% in some studies in the population. So as a proportion of infections, children make a very, very, very small proportion in terms of infections with COVID-19. So what does this mean? This uh, is just a, a graph showing you it's much, a, a much easier representation. You can see that the, uh, with the bar chart, the blue is females, the green is males. And um, you can see in terms of the y-axis, the number of cases. And as you can see, children between the ages of 0 and 19 make a very, very, very small proportion of uh, infections of COVID-19. So unlike all the other viral infections and being a pulmonologist, we every year um, see influenza virus every year. We see RSV infections. In all the other viruses, children and the elderly are usually the high risk population groups in terms of being affected by these um, respiratory, respiratory viruses. But what is very different in terms of COVID-19 is there's something specific in children which seems to protect them against getting COVID-19. And I'll be getting into that in a little bit. So when you really want to uh, see what is the burden of infection in a whole population, of course, the best thing would be for everybody in the population to be tested. And then you can say with certainty, what percentage of the population has the infection. Now, there's a very, uh, a quite an interesting study that was done in Italy um, uh, earlier this year, where in one town, which is called Vo in Italy, just outside Venice, it's a very small town with just over 3,000 individuals. What happened is with COVID-19, when it uh, first broke out, they tested the whole town. So about 86% of the, that town was actually screened and tested for COVID-19. And they did the tests at two time points before they had a lockdown and two weeks after a lockdown. And what they found was about 2.6% of the population, the whole town, actually had COVID-19 and no children under the age of 10 were actually infected. So again, showing us evidence, showing us that children make up a very, very small proportion of COVID-19 infections, even though, as you would know, Italy actually suffered a huge uh, COVID-19 outbreak. And even in that context, very, very few children got infected. Now, one of the other questions that we get is, of course, we worry about transmission from individual to individual. And in the study that was done in China early in around April, they looked at family clusters. So in a family that had an infection, uh, that had people who were infected with COVID-19, trying to find the index case. What we mean by the index case is a person who was the first to be infected, who then infected everybody around the household. Now they found that in this, in these, uh, in this study that only under 10% of children were actually the indexed and the ones that would be suspected to have spread the infection to the rest of the family. So that's also something that is quite interesting and unusual and quite pe peculiar to children. So now I did say I was going to try to explain to you why we think that children, unlike adults, are not getting 
uh, a lot of COVID infections, as we're seeing in the population, they make up a very small proportion of the population that get infected. And we have some kind of uh, proposed reasons why we think this is so. Now, COVID-19, although it's a very efficient virus, it's a very clever virus, it requires a certain, a specific receptor to allow it, allow it to break through our uh, cells in our body in order for it to enter our body and then cause infection. Now, this receptor is called the ACE2 receptor. Now, why is this important? We know that children have a very immature receptor system. So children have very much fewer of these ACE2 receptors when we compare them to adults. And we take specimens from the upper airway and the lower airway, we know that children have a much uh, lower receptor level. So that's probably one of the reasons why children, unlike adults, have uh, less infections. Now, another, quite another mechanism which we think is probably explaining this difference is we know that a lot of children, if we test children and we take specimens from them from the upper airways and their lungs, we usually find a viral soup. There are usually many viruses that are in the upper airways. There are other rhinoviruses, other coronaviruses, not the COVID-19, because there's other circulating coronaviruses and other viruses that are in the upper respiratory tract. Now, what does this mean? That, of course, if you have many viruses, there will be competition. So we think that this competition is also probably being preventive because then COVID has other viruses to compete with in order to be able to affect the, uh, the immune, uh, to affect uh, children. So um, another uh, thing that we know, uh, of course we know about the risk factors for uh, adults having severe COVID-19 infection. And one of those factors is, as we know, is the, the known risk factors. People who have diabetes, mellitus, hypertension, all these other chronic diseases. Uh, we know that young children have not lived long enough to have uh, a lot of these infections, although a very, very small proportion of children in the population would have these uh, diseases. So children, uh, because of the the relative youth would not have been exposed and we think that's probably another reason why children are not being affected by COVID-19 as adults are, are being. So can children spread COVID-19? Now if we look at uh, different viruses and the efficiency in infecting, uh, being infectious from person to person, we know that the seasonal influenza virus which we will have now in the population because uh, winter has arrived and we now even have a cold front. The seasonal influenza, if you have influenza, your likelihood of infecting, you probably would be able to infect between one and two individuals. Now, what is also different between the seasonal influenza and COVID-19 is COVID-19, um, what we call its re uh, basic reproductive number, is probably most likely to, uh, if one person would be able to infect somewhere between two and three people. So it's much more efficient than our normal influenza virus. Now we all know, and I think uh, if anybody has been around for the last three months, we all know that the COVID-19 is a, is a virus that's ca carried in our respiratory tract and that if we speak, laugh, uh, sing, um, uh, 
the, the, the respiratory droplets in our airway can then um, uh, infect a person who's uh, within a meter of us or some of the droplets may fall, fall down onto uh, objects, for example, uh, or the smaller particles uh, that are released when, we, when we're talking or breathing can actually uh, uh, go into a person's, uh, the next person's respiratory tract. Now, it's, that is why it's important and you hear about all these issues of social distancing because the further you are from another individual, the less likely that the droplets would be able to fall onto you. And obviously, uh, if we speak or talk or sing, the virus can then uh, uh, go onto surfaces ar around us. And that is also one of the reasons why uh, cleaning of surfaces is such an important preventative strategy. Prof. Masakela, just to note from a time point of view, there are two more minutes for your presentation. Oh, oh goodness. Okay. So um, now I just wanted to uh, touch on the issue of spreading disease from children. We know that uh, there's a number of studies that have been done that show that, yes, if we look at the, uh, the amount of virus uh, that is found in our respiratory tract, that in this study in Germany, they looked to see the amount of virus in children that were admitted in hospital. Uh, it, seemed, it seems that yes, children do have a, a sufficient amount of virus when they are sick. But if uh, we look at children, uh, those that have, that have the, the COVID infections but have absolutely no symptoms, their viral load, that is the load of the virus in, in, their, in their secretions, seems to be much less when compared to adults. So um, we know that children, uh, firstly, are not affected as much as adults. And secondly, when children get COVID infection, the majority of them usually have asymptomatic disease. So what are the symptoms that children present with? Now for adults, we've heard about the typical symptoms, breathlessness, fever, and cough. But in a number of studies now in China and the US, we know that children very rarely uh, would present with a fever. Only about 40% of children would have a fever. The, uh, about half would have a cough, but the majority of children, unlike in adults, would have a red throat, sore throat, diarrhea, vomiting, a runny nose. So I think for school teachers, this is key. Uh, we shouldn't just think about uh, just the cough. A child with a sore throat with a bit of diarrhea, runny nose, should then be kept from school because they're likely to be infected. We'll just, uh, I think, skip that slide. Now, what I wanted to demonstrate here in this study that was published from the USA is if we look at the proportion of children that get infected and we look at different age groups, how many of these children would have significant and severe disease? If you look at that left-hand panel, you will see that for the children under the age of one, the uh, blue uh, panel shows a number of children that would need hospitalization. The light blue, those who'd uh, need to go to ICU. We can, you can see that younger children are at actually more risk of having more severe disease requiring hospitalization when you compare them to the school-going children. A very small proportion of them would actually have significant disease and would need to be hospitalized. So we know from a large data set in the US of over 150,000 cases, only 2% of children actually required ICU and uh, only 1.7% of all children that actually got sick actually uh, uh, 
uh, required uh, to be admitted to hospital. So it's the smaller, the younger children under the age of one that if they get infected, they have slightly more severe disease than the older school-going children. I'm not going to talk about protection because I think that Professor, uh, Dr. Archery will cover that as well. So what I wanted to cover, which I think is a key question for many uh, people, is which children are at highest risk for COVID-19. Now we know, as I've just shown you in the previous slide, younger children, particularly those under the age of one. So children under the age of five proportionally are the ones that if they get infected, they're ones that probably would need, uh, would be sick and be hospitalized, but a minority of them would need intensive uh, care. Children who have chronic diseases in the chest, so uh, children who have destroyed lungs with bronchiectasis, for example, we know that those children are at a slightly higher risk. But I want to stress, for children with asthma, there's now quite a lot of data around this. Asthmatic children who have mild asthma or moderate asthma don't seem to be at higher risk when compared to the rest of the population. So if you have asthma and the asthma is well controlled, these children are not at risk. They should be able to return to school because from data from Europe and the US, very, very few children actually had any significant uh, infections with COVID-19 when compared to the rest of the population. We know from other viral infections, children who have heart diseases, severe neurological problems, those should probably uh, be your high-risk group and should uh, be protected. And what, uh, has actually, what we were also concerned about as pediatricians was those children that have cancers and are on uh, chemotherapy, et cetera. But there's been a very, um, a study that was published actually uh, a week or two ago from the US where they looked at children in a cancer clinic and quite surprisingly and heartily, a lot of, a, a very, very small proportion of these children actually seem to be affected by COVID-19 and very few of them actually required admission. So um, although these are a special category, the, the findings from this one study are quite uh, heartening. And obviously children that have any uh, only medis medication that suppresses the immune system, have uh, diseases that suppress the immune system, we'd be concerned about those children as well. Now, I know that people have also read about this Kawasaki-like syndrome, which was uh, in the New York Times. Uh, uh, they, this was recognized in the UK and the US with children presenting with this quite significant uh, inflammatory syndrome requiring ICU. This we think is actually not just, uh, it doesn't really happen in the acute phase of the disease when children uh, first become positive for COVID-19. It's something that happens a few weeks later after the infection. But what I wanted to stress from this, remembering that children would only make up about 1% of the one to 5% of the population that would be infected with COVID infection. I've told you now about 2% of those children would probably need to be hospitalized very, 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 very few of these children would require intensive uh, care. This uh, disease, this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, is actually a very rare complication, which is found in a very small proportion of that even smaller proportion of COVID infections. Now, um, we must remember that keeping children from school isolates them. 
uh, there's very little structure if people don't go, children don't go to school. And there's been now quite a lot of data uh, with a big study in China showing that a fifth of children, because of social isolation, de develop depression and, and anxiety. And I think we should really take that into account when we're thinking that children should be kept away from school. Um, so I just want to conclude by saying that COVID-19 affects a very small proportion of, uh, of, of, of the population. If we're talking about children, they make up a very significant minority of the cases. Uh, if we look at the burden of disease, if children get COVID-19, the disease is usually asymptomatic or mild. Uh, so these children don't usually require to go to hospital and a very, very small proportion of those that even go to hospital would require to be uh, in an intensive care unit. We think that children are also not quite as efficient as adults in terms of spreading the disease, but we should also, again, be careful in the very young children who are not schoolgoers and also those children who have other diseases that may put them at a slightly higher risk for getting COVID-19 and therefore more severe uh, disease. I will stop there. Great. Thanks, uh, Prof. Masekela. Um, I've, there are four questions that have come up that I think it will be useful if we answer them now, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, so the first one is specifically about asthma, and I think your expertise as a pulmonologist would help a lot. One of the parents says here, how would you advise parents with children suffering from allergic rhinitis and asthma in view of COVID-19? Are these children allowed to attend school? Um, I think I'm going to stress again because of the interest of time. There's been now a lot of data published, especially from the US, from Wisconsin, where they looked at people who have allergic rhinitis as well as allergy. And what they found is, uh, unlike people who don't have allergies, uh, uh, that, that ACE2 receptor that I was talking about, people who have allergy and allergic asthma have an even lower level of the ACE2 receptor. So they seem to be at even lower risk than other children for getting the COVID infection because that receptor seems to be lower in the airways. Secondly, there's been now a, a really good large data set uh, from many, many countries in Europe where they pulled the data together and they wanted to categorize risks and asthmatics that were, those were over 900 children in that study, and only 45 of those children actually tested positive for COVID and they were also asthmatic, and none of those children actually required hospitalization. So again, if you have controlled asthma, it's not, and the child is not requiring to come to hospital many times, they have mild or moderate disease, and your doctor has seen your child and is quite comfortable that your child doesn't require to be admitted to hospital many times, it should be safe for that child with asthma to go back to school. Okay, great. Thank you. The second question was on, you mentioned that the research is based on China and the Europe and the US. Um, given that we have very different situation in South Africa with TB and HIV, can we trust that research in South Africa? And does the existing research that we have in South Africa tell us anything about this? Okay, that's a very good question. And of course, because uh, we don't have a lot of time, I couldn't go a lot into that. Now, we know that uh, China is a very different demographic. They have a wine child policy. Um, so in China, you would have very small households. And in the Europe, of course, the dynamics are different and we don't have the high burden of HIV and TB. Now, 
if somebody has uh, TB and they, sorry, they have um, HIV and it's well controlled, that is they've gone to their doctor, the viral load is suppressed, the child is well, we would think that that child would probably, it would be safe for them to go back to school. Of course, we don't have much data. And as I stated at the beginning, we've been five months into this disease and there's very, very little data from Africa where, we would where there's a high burden of HIV and TB. So the simple answer is unfortunately, from a data scientific perspective, we don't have a lot of data, but we'll have to see um, as the, the disease evolves in our country, whether this would impact uh, our patients differently, those who have TB and HIV. But um, if, a, if the person has well-controlled disease, they're not sick, the child is absolutely well, it would be reasonably, uh, this is not based on any hard scientific fact, but it would be reasonable for that child to be able to go to school. And this I would base from the data around the children who had the oncological malignancies and other primary immune deficiencies that data from Europe, they didn't seem to be at high risk of getting COVID-19. Okay. The third question is about um, some of the data that you shared. Are the incidence rates lower for children simply because they were relatively more protected because schools were closed down? Is that the reason why we're seeing lower rates in children? Well, I think that argument would probably, uh, if, if, if that were true, the children don't live in isolation, they live in households. So if it would be logical that if you have a, a, an adult case who gets infected, that children would be infected as well. And we know there's very good data that uh, adults in one family, most of the time would not, would not infect children in the same household. So of course we, have, we don't have data around schools, but we do have data around people living in the same environment. So I, I think that, uh, um, uh, that argument can be, uh, can be argued against because obviously children don't live in isolation, they live in households. And if they're people infected in the households, then the, they should be infected. Mm. And I think we've also seen some data from countries where they have open schools and we haven't seen big outbreaks linked to those schools, uh, like in, in Sweden, for example. So the last question, Prof. Masekela, I think you had a graph in your presentation. If you can just go back a bit to um, the UK and the rates of hospitalization and deaths relative to the age groups. I think it was one of the graphs that you skipped. Um, yes. One before this one. Yeah, this one. No, this one. Yeah. Well, what I, if what you I could just give us a break, breakdown of that graph, because I think it gives some some solace to parents when they're seeing all of these rates of, you know, hearing stories of people going to hospital uh, and dying and things like that. Can you just describe and explain that graph on the right to us? Okay, so on this graph, this is data from the UK. Um, and this is data for people that were admitted, they had COVID-19 and these people were admitted in UK hospitals. And this is data from over 20,000 patients. Um, and of those 20,000 patients, only 310 were children under the age of 18. And uh, they made up in terms of a proportion about 1.5% of the overall infection burden of the, of, that, of, of the UK. Now, if you look at the graph on the right-hand side, this shows the outcome. So what happened to these people who had COVID infections, who were admitted to a hospital, what happened to them? Now you see the pinkish is 
people that were discharged. The uh, sort of orange is people who needed ongoing care that they were, they were still in the hospital uh, at the end of the study. And the purple shows the people that died. So you can see that from this data from UK, if you look at the bottom of the graph that shows children below the age of 19, you can see that there's none, none, none of the children died. Very few of them were still getting ongoing care and the majority of them were discharged. So really the message from this very large study is children generally do very well, even if they get admitted in a hospital, the outcome is good. Con remembering mm. a small proportion of children would actually be admitted uh, with COVID-19. Thanks, Prof. Masekela. I think what it also shows is just that it's so, so rare that children do actually get severely ill with COVID-19, that they need to get admitted to hospital. This seems like an extremely, extremely rare disease for children and specifically, whereas for old adults, it's obviously not very rare um, based on this, this data that you're showing. So thanks so much for that presentation. I think we're going to hand over to our next speaker now. Uh, and Prof. Masekele, feel free to answer the Q&A in the Zoom. I think Mo has been doing a great job of just answering some of the questions that the panelists have just while we're going along. We've had each of the pre presenters and unfortunately, we didn't have the opportunity to applaud your wonderful presentations. And I'm going to do it on behalf of all uh, uh, of, of the audience. We really appreciate the pre uh, presentations. And I think uh, the, the sentiments that's been expressed by Nicole uh, states better what I could uh, sum up the presentations. And she says, I wish that presentations like these were made live to the nation via TV. I feel they're so good to bring a sense of peace. I'm so grateful to be here and witness this well done so far. And I, yeah, I, I think this is a sentiment that would be shared by many of those listening to it of having some science in order to make decisions and done in a way that is factual. Uh, I hope on a personal note, uh, my niece uh, Tamika also appreciates the presentation because she challenged me every day to should she go back to school and I thought in order to, uh, for, you, for you to make that decision Tamika I'll get you three specialists on a panel and I do hope that she goes back to school. Um, so just to uh, as I said that, that that's the thanks from everyone to the presenters. But Nick, uh, can we present uh, one or two, can you ask one or two questions that came through to all sure. the panel? And then I will also ask something and we'll have to close very soon. So one of the questions that came up is uh, that we've been speaking about uh, children and sometimes we speak about children under 10, sometimes we speak about children under 14. Uh, for a parent of a teenager, should they be worried about sending a teenager to school uh, or not? That's the first question. So I don't know who wants to take that one. Uh, thanks, Nick. I think looking at the data um, and the 15 to 19 year old age group, which is sort of a late adolescent, the young adolescent under 15, uh, slightly lesser risk. And as they get older, of course, the risk increases. But remember, this is still a very, very, very small proportion. So I think still for an adolescent, they had much lower risk than an adult of getting COVID-19. 
So although it looks like um, as the children get older, their risk because of the maturity of the ACE receptor slightly increases, even overall, looking at the pediatric population, it's still a much, much lower risk than compared to an adult, for example. Okay, thanks. And then the second sorry, question I'll, was, uh, oh, sorry, Prof. Sorry, Nick, I, I would agree with that. Most studies, when they've defined children, they've used a cutoff of, of 19 years or 20 years. So that, that would include uh, that age group in terms of teenagers. So most of them say less than 18 years or less than 20 years. Okay, so the parents of a teenager should feel comfortable about sending their kids uh, in terms of the, the science is showing that it's, they seem to be less susceptible or uh, the, the probability of them developing severe illness from COVID is very low. That's correct. Cool. I think it's simply, I think just to say, I mean, there's been examples from Vietnam and other countries where they, where teenagers uh, remained at school and they, they really didn't have the surge of infection. Okay. And then the second question was a, a more personal one. Um, I'm not sure if, if any of our panelists have children themselves that might be going back to school. So if you do, if you could just comment, do you feel personally comfortable sending your children to back to school? Do you think it's safe uh, for the health of your children? And if you don't have children, you know, your nieces or nephews or friends, children, Kind of just commenting on a personal level, do you think it's safe to send children back to school? And maybe um, we can start with you, uh, Prof Masekela, and then Prof Elapi, and then Mo. Yes, uh, I have a very young child, so he's not school going as yet. But um, speaking to, I have fielded many, many texts and phone calls from friends, family, and my message to everybody is take the child back to school because I think the risk is low. Uh, the unintended consequences are higher, far higher than the infection. We should send the kids back to school. Cool. And Prof Vilapi, just before we get to you, um, Prof Masekele, when you speak about those other, those other consequences of not sending kids back to school, can you just mention some of them briefly? I mean, starting with the educational aspects, we know that homeschooling doesn't work. We as adults, actually, if we have to do full-time work at home, uh, studies have shown we only do that for about 40% of the time. So it's very hard for a child to learn at home. Um, secondly, I think the social isolation aspect is critical. We have to look at that. The mental health aspects for children, for children who are very disadvantaged, lack of school nutrition, which is important, vitally important for children's learning. Uh, it's, it's all these opportunities for growth, for development, for children to learn and thrive will be missed. Cool. Thanks, Prof. Masigere. Prof. Elapi? Yes, I, I think as a parent, I'll be lying to say I don't have anxiety. But having uh, read what is on the, what has been published about the virus and about other viruses, yes, my child must go to school because the risk is much, much less. And especially that the schools are expected to put in, in place all the uh, measures to, to prevent infection. And again, it's like any other infection, when the kids go to school, there's always a risk of any other infection like flu, uh, RSV. So one always has that anxiety for children going to school. But it, it, to me, that anxiety is not high enough for me to say my child mustn't go to school. Yes, I've got um, uh, an, a niece of mine who's disabled. Yes, I would say uh, she mustn't go to school, uh, no, not yet. 
And so she must, she must stay at home because uh, so she's severely affected in terms of uh, disability and neurological. So I think those kind of children who are at higher risk uh, possibly must, must wait and, and see what happens. But I think other children must go to school. So I've got the eight-year-old uh, child who's looking forward to go to school as soon as they open. So he will be going. Great. And Prof. Philippi, just to clarify on your, um, your relation who, who has a disability, um, is the, what type, would you, what's your recommendation for parents of children that have disabilities, if it's a physical disability or uh, they normally would go to a special school? Are there specific types of disabilities that you would recommend that they not send their children to school? So, so I, I think my, mine is with a severe cerebral palsy where he goes to a home with, uh, with, other, with other children where they are, they are kept uh, uh, because my uh, sister is, is, is working. So there's no one to look after the, the child. So I would say that home uh, where she's kept must ensure that everything is, is done right. There are more people to, to supervise so that the secretions are not uh, spread uh, all over. So it should okay. be those kinds of uh, severe disability that one is, uh, is talking to. But again, if the school can put measures in place and reassure the parents that that situation is, is taken care of, those kids with time, they should go back to school also. Okay. Because at the end of the day, the parents need to go back to work. Some parents need to go back to work who can't afford to, to get a helper to stay with those kids there full time because in terms of economy, they need to survive. Sure. And then um, Dr. Archery, Mo, what's your, uh, what's your take? Yeah, no, mine is I've got a teenage son um, and he's eager to go back to school. And I think we eager, my fridge at home is very eager for him to also go back to school. Um, he spends half his life in the, in the kitchen. Um, so I think, I think certainly, I think looking at the evidence, I think we, every parent has some anxiety um, and we really do want to protect our children as far as possible. And certainly if you look at the overall picture that we've seen, um, and, and thankfully we uh, are dealing with this epidemic uh, while other countries have already done so. So we've got a lot more evidence and we've got a lot more that we can rely on to give us some degree of surety that it is relatively safe for our children to go, go back to school. Um, so there's never ever a 100% answer uh, to that, but certainly there's a lot more evidence uh, available that schooling is now safe for children compared to you know, when this epidemic first came out uh, in, in November, December last year. Okay, thanks, um, Dr. Archery. And then I think if we can maybe just have uh, just closing hey, remarks uh, from from Nick, each of the uh, Nick. Nick, uh, let me. Uh, uh, I'll I'll uh, just uh, have a set of questions. Okay. Okay. Can you end your bit? Yeah. No, All I was right. just going to say I think it'll be useful yeah, to uh, at the end thanks. of your questions, uh, Vijay, just to get the take-home point from each of the panelists, kind of their one message to parents. But if you've got additional questions, then feel free to to do those. I uh, just thought we were wrapping up. Thanks, Nick. Uh, before we end the session, I would like to uh, let me just try to get uh, uh, let me just get uh, Nick off the screen. Nick, will you? Uh, mute your, your video. Okay. Right. Uh, am I on? Just as we take this decision, and it's very good to hear the three of you and your perspective 
in your own uh, circumstances of how you're going to handle this. But kids, children going back to school, and we have about 26, 27,000 schools um, now. And, and there would be outbreaks, minor outbreaks, uh, and, and schools may close. What is your advice in terms of how many teachers or how many children in a school, uh, if a certain number of teachers or children in a school are infected, then when, when do schools take those decisions for school closures? And maybe we can go again in the same order that we did before. Uh, I, would, I would suggest that Mo handle this as the ID specialist. I think he would probably give the most relevant information to all of us. Uh, thanks for giving me the, leaving me the last, the most <laughs> difficult of questions. <laughs> I think the difficulty is that we don't know. Um, certainly, I think when we look at the, uh, you know, what we define as being an outbreak, an outbreak is defined as where you have two or more individuals who are infected with a uh, whatever the infection is. Uh, but there has to be a, what's called a temporal relationship between those two individuals. So certainly, what we do expect, and I, I'll be very surprised. At when next, when we open schools next week, that they that they will not be an infection. So there will be individuals, uh, educators, uh, students who will be positive, and they will be very likely that they will be positive uh, or infected from home. Um, however, what we need to really look at, and the school really needs to look at, where there's evidence that there's spread of infection within the school environment, and uh, and that may be. A way, a, a time where we may need to uh, uh, close, and we don't really want to close the entire school. Um, and the way in which we, we envisage, and we recommended that this happens, is that you keep uh, groups of, of individuals uh, together. So you may have to only close a class, or you may have to only close a grade where you have some infection occurring. Um, so again, um, it's around how do we keep this, uh, the disruption to schools as minimal as possible. If we, if we say that every time there's an infection, uh, if someone who's coming into a school is infected, we close the school, schools will never function. Um, and we have to look at it in the environment that we are, and, and we need to expect, and it's unrealistic to expect, that there will not be uh, individuals who come into the school environment with infection because schools are not a bubble. Schools occur within the community that they, are, uh, that they reside within. Um, so I think we need to work on how we deal with that and be realistic about our expectations for infections within schools. I don't I, I think, think that, sorry, Prof, I'll pick up for it. Yes, I think what also might assist in terms of reducing the chances of closing the schools is, is knowing uh, uh, which teacher goes to which class. So that if there's a teacher who's affected, it's not a teacher who's been going to all the classes in the, in, in the whole school. So that you know who to focus if you have to, have to close. I think the, the approach of opening gradually is, is the best approach rather than opening the whole school. So that at least you can limit, a, a, have a teacher covering one or two classes and you know which teacher is covering which class. And I would agree with more one teacher being infected, I will not immediately suggest a, a, a closure. As to what is the critical number, I think Moore has suggested a number, but I'm not sure if in this situation, two will be that number. I think 
one have to do closer screening in terms of the, the, the symptoms uh, for others and, and make sure that the mask and the distance are maintained. Uh, I, I would imagine that in the big metros where there's higher infection rates, we would have situations where schools would have one or two uh, incidents. And um, I, I hope, uh, I'm sure the Department of Basic Education has developed a strategy on how principals are going to make these decisions. I don't know it. I, Martin Gustafsson is uh, one of the people here. I d Martin, do you know anything about what strategy the Department of Basic Education will use when, when infections happen? Because we must also remember that with every, with the, every infection, this would be part of a media story and parents will have their own anxieties enhanced by that. But let me just ask Martin if he, if he knows. I don't know if you can unmute uh, Martin. Right, okay. I'm I think we here. should wrap up, uh, Vijay. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, sorry, um, Nick, let me finish. Uh, so, so I don't see Martin on the line he had been answering. I want to try to end this uh, uh, session. And uh, before I do the formal closing, uh, could I ask uh, Prof Masikela, Velapi, and Dr. Archery if any last comments that they would like to make? Okay, uh, thank you so much, Vijay. I think we've tried to uh, allay people's fears to say that the risk for children for COVID infection is low, the risk of getting disease is low, and the risk of getting ill enough to get to hospital is low. So I hope that um, most of our parents, our uh, uh, teachers, uh, will be able to go back to school safely. Thank you. Prof. Lapi? Yes, uh, uh, thanks. I think it's been mentioned that uh, children will get infection. And uh, I think, but the, the chances of them getting infection are much less than in adults. Even if they do get infection, are less likely to be very, very sick. And also from what we know uh, so far, they are not uh, super spreaders in terms of uh, infection. So, but I think uh, one still has to uh, put all the measures in place to protect uh, against infection, because even if it's one or two who are infected, as parents we will be worried. Thank you. No? Yeah, I think the one thing is, so the last thing I think just to agree, I think we, we need to get children back to school. We need to start learning how to, in, to continue our existence uh, with this uh, virus in the background. But I think the one thing I would just want to mention is that uh, you know, there is a lot of anxiety, not just in parents. And we've often forgotten that children are dealing with a hell of a lot of anxiety because of the, what they hear, what they hear over the dinner table, what they hear over the media. So I encourage every parent who's on this uh, group really to sit down, speak to your child, engage with them, uh, discuss what their fears are, and try to uh, respond to those fears as, as appropriately as possible. Thank you. Uh, thank you all. And, and so it's one second. As, as I bring the session to a close, uh, I would like to appreciate a few people. Uh, the, the technology, the digital platform, all of it worked for the two hours and I really appreciate that. I would like to thank the HSRC's uh, IT division and the communication division for all the work that they did in terms of 
putting together this uh, two-hour session. As I said, there'll be a recording and we're splicing the uh, presentations uh, uh, which, which, which will then be uploaded and Arlene Grossberg will be sending the communication about the links to each of the presentation. I see a number of people in the chat said, we wish that this was, uh, these presentations could be made uh, to, to a broader set of audience. We'll see, it, it probably will take a life of its own. I know that me, people from the media are around, so they will probably pick it up as well. And uh, the, the three present, medical presenters should be expecting some calls. So, uh, so the second set of people is to uh, the, the three of the presenters plus Nick Spall for the questions that in, in between. Really appreciate the time that you took out to, to make these presentations and to make it in a way that a number of us non-medical people can equally understand. Um, there's science and the communication of the science is very critical so that people can make decisions.